This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, the third in a row, as I promised, that would be a little bit of a more intellectual profile. This week, talking to Scott Shea, who is such an interesting person. By trade, is a banker. He owns a bank, worked for many years in private equities, mergers and acquisitions, and the like, but has written a couple of books that have made a major impact on the Jewish community. The first one dealt with the state of American Jewish life. And more recently, he wrote a book called In Good Faith, which is an exhaustive treatment of the atheism and theism debate, which is so current in our present moment, contemporary culture, with a very bold new atheism movement and a lot of discussion around the world on university campuses and certainly online. Scott Chase jumped into the fray, dedicating five years of his life, putting almost everything else on hold to do an incredible amount of research and present his perspective and his findings. So a real treat to hear from Scott today, a very, very busy person with quite a successful business career who has also become a remarkably impactful Jewish thinker. Also, in the spirit of some of the podcast recommendations I've been trying to make lately, another one that I would refer is called Jewish History Soundbites by a man named Yehuda Geberer, based out of Israel. Really, really interesting. He's an incredibly knowledgeable individual when it comes to Jewish history. He leads tours all over the world, Germany, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, etc., Jewish-themed heritage tours. And I really enjoy his podcasts, which come out almost daily. They're generally a little bit shorter, 20 or so minutes tackling a different topic or a different personality each time. Really worth a listen. Check him out at Jewish History Soundbites. Of course, on this podcast, a reminder again to subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple, Google, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else it may be. Please subscribe. Also rate and review. It really helps us out, but mainly spreading the word so that more listeners can discover us would be greatly appreciated. Follow us again on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram as well as on Facebook, and at Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. And now to our riveting conversation with businessman, banker, and prolific Jewish thinker and author, Scott Shea. We are here with businessman, speaker, and most recently, author Scott Shea. How are you, Scott? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Ari. Thank you so, so much. Scott, I've uh, had the chance to start reading your book, and I'm just really fascinated by your journey, your passion for the topics that you researched with such tremendous depth, and I'm so excited to hear a little bit about where you're from and and what your background was like. So take it from the top and tell us about your early story. Well, I was born in Chicago, 
in a lower middle class neighborhood, East Rogers Park. Most people have heard of West Rogers Park. East Rogers Park is sure. a very working class area. My father was came here after the Shoah, after the Holocaust. He was really one of the only survivors of his family. Um, he was uh, from Svexna, Lithuania. I mean, my closest relative right now on his side of the family is a second cousin once removed. So most everybody, as you know, in Lithuania, most of the Jews were wiped out. And um, anyway, he came here, um, learned English, learned to be a carpenter. And he got a, you know, got a union card, was in the trade and built a life, married my mother and... Uh, they started a life together, but my father had spent a quite a bit of time in slave labor, and he made it here. He knew it was a miracle that he had gotten. He was probably days away from death. So my parents started a life. East Rogers Park sent me to a public school, Eugene Field, then Sullivan. And then in my summer between my sophomore and junior year, I decided to transfer to Ida Crown Jewish Academy. Go Aces. Yeah, and that started sort of a Jewish journey for me in many ways. Now, would your family come from a very active background Jewishly? Because I know that Lithuania had a lot of challenges Jewishly, a lot of assimilation, especially between the wars. Uh, my father was in, grew up in a shtetl, which was, you know, it, it was definitely an Orthodox town in terms of the Jews. It was 60 miles from Vilna, so it was under the Vilna, you know, sort of uh, uh, world. But once my father came to the United States, he did not retain his observances. You may have read in my book, um, one of the things I talk about is that my father was very certain that there was a God that wasn't really a question mark for him. But he was pretty angry at that God who had let right, his father right. be killed almost in front of him before they were before he was deported at least, and had killed his brothers, murdered a God who had permitted the murder of his brothers, his family, almost literally everybody he knew was murdered. Um, and my mother came from a secular background, so they kept a kosher kitchen but mostly just uh, people could eat there, you know, so anybody could eat there. And uh, that's how I grew up. I went to Hebrew school, learned nothing. I mean, with, <laughs> with difficulty, I could have said, you know, I could decode Hebrew words. Um, I didn't know what anything meant. Mem Semi-memorized my Haftarah. And frankly, one of the things that got me going, you know, and getting back involved in being in the Jewish world was USY. It was a great thing. And that got me sort of a, a little bit connected to Ida Crown. Um, remember, this was a day and age when there was less particularism, I would say. And so, you know, conservative folks were comfortable going to USY and Orthodox schools were comfortable having conservatives. Uh, and conservatives were used to, you know, doing and, and Orthodox were used to, you know, sort of mixing more in the conservative even synagogue world in Chicago. There weren't as many Jews, so we, you know, fought less. I was going to ask, what precipitated your switch to Ida Crown? 
So I really came to a certain point where I realized that I knew nothing. I mean, I was in USY and I, and I liked the feeling of being Jewish. I knew that Judaism had cost many members of my family their lives. And I felt like I needed to know more. Like, what was it about my heritage that was so important to so many and also so hated by so many? It, it clearly had to be something important. And I realized I knew nothing. Uh, you know, I've always been, and in, in, in I guess since I've been young, someone who in a healthy way obsesses over things and tries to figure things out. So my sophomore year, I actually, of high school, I, I enrolled in what was then the Associated Talmud Torah Hebrew High School, which was an after school uh, program that met at Ida Crown, actually. It met in the same building. But I took some classes. I took two classes. And the truth of the matter is, by the end of the year, I still thought I knew next to nothing. <laughs> and I thought if I'm going to learn something, I'm going to have to essentially dive in off the deep end of the pool. And I was seeing, you know, what Ida Crown was. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the way to do it. And so without giving it as much thought as I should have, um, I decided to enroll. And the Ida Crown people were wonderful about encouraging me. And so I started out and found myself as a junior in high school, not knowing anything, knowing very little Hebrew, knowing very little, really, no Aramaic, finding myself in a Gemara class, learning, uh, learning to vote. I wonder if that was kind of a metaphor or a foreshadow for your future forays into this more academic pursuit and, and deep understanding of religion and theology, it seems like you're rather undaunted by that kind of a prospect. Yeah, I am pretty undaunted. Um, and, and it, you know, it's probably from lack of consideration and from, uh, I probably should be more daunted. And one of the things that I found personally is that had someone told me, so this book that I've written, took me five years. So my first book took me a year. And I sort of knew what I was getting into. My first, my first book was getting out grew back, how to energize American joy. And I sort of knew what I was getting into with that book. With this book, I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was five years of essentially all of my discretionary free time. I mean, on Saturday nights, on Motzei Shabbat, I would work from, you know, in the during the winter, not so much in the summer, but during the winter, I'd work five hours after Shabbat was over. Wow! wow. I basically, my I would call it quits every night. I had one end time, and I would call it quits when the Saturday Night Live um, cold opening came on. So if it was live, <laughs> if it was live, I'd stop working then. If it was a rerun, I could go a little further, and I keep working until midnight. And then I work sometimes on Sundays, fourteen hours. And anytime I had two hours during the week, it was just, it was truly OCD. 
and I just felt like this was such an important thing. I felt like other than my family and my work, this was the most important thing I was doing. So I had been involved, I already probably know, involved in a lot of Jewish communal activities. I'd been on the board of Jewish agency. I was on the executive committee of UJ Federation. I was on too many boards. I was an over-involved Jew. And I cut back most of them. I mean, I'm on a few, I, I, I stayed on as, I was very involved in forming Chai Mitzvah. So I'm president of that. And I went involved in a Hebrew school Jewish youth connection. But almost everything else I cut back on to zero. And I just worked on this book because I get, when I get committed to something, I do dive in off the deep end. Except what I didn't know with the book is I was diving off, not into a pool, but into Lake Michigan. <laughs> in the middle, somewhere halfway between Milwaukee and, uh, and uh, Chicago. Tell us, Scott, what was the profession that you were, so to speak, interrupting or superseding or sidelining or, or coexisting with when you were doing all this writing? I understand that you went to Northwestern, I believe, to the Kellogg Business School. What were your goals from there and, and what line of work specifically did you get into? So I went to Northwestern undergraduate, and then I went to business school directly after in the days when you could still do that. And then I went to work on Wall Street for, at Solomon Brothers for eight years during the 80s. That was the heyday of, you know, the 80s. You know, the, the, it was when Liar's Poker was written. I, now I was doing that, that sort of stuff. I was doing mergers and acquisitions. I was working gargantuan hours. and then. I joined um, Lou Ranieri in starting a private equity fund. And then after a certain, I was involved in a lot of stuff relating to Israel. Um, I was involved in the, I was on the board of Bank of Portland for eight years, and I was one of the negotiators in the privatization of Bank of Portland during Bibi's first term. In the 90s. Yeah, in the 90s. I became a member of the board in 97 and then served about eight years until... Hyperion sold its stake in, 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 in Bunker Boilim. But one of the things I did in, in the late 90s, I had this idea that it was important that there was, an offer, there was an opportunity to start a bank in New York. And, and so we started a bank. Bank of Boilim agreed to put in the seed capital, $42.5 million, to Signature Bank. We started May 1st, 2001. And we broke even after 21 months. We went public after 34 months, which is pretty good even for, you know, certainly for a bank. And after 18 years, we're a $50 billion bank. We've never made an acquisition. Wow. Uh, we have, it's all been organic growth and it's all been middle market. I mean, the reason a lot of people haven't heard of us is because we don't do sort of the super big companies, the Verizons and the IBMs of the world, and we don't do mass market retail. We do companies primarily with between 25 and 500 employees. That's our sweet spot. And so your value add is service. What do you bring to them? Well, we bring the best service for middle market companies. So for example, the, the big banks are geared up for, you know, for, let me put it this way. It's very hard for a big bank to, to, accommodate a middle market privately owned company because it has such idiosyncratic needs and yet we're geared up for that as i like to say to people 
or our clients, you, you won't be able to get Jamie Dimon on the phone if you got a problem with Chase, but you can get me on the phone if you got an issue with Signature Bank. And that ends up being uh, an important thing because if there's an issue, senior management can get involved. As I said, our average loan size, even though we're just shy of a $50 billion bank, it's about $5 million. So which for a middle market bank, that sounds like a lot, but for corporate America, that's, that's next to nothing. And we basically give those companies better service than they can get either at a big bank or that small banks are capable of giving them. So we've sort of designed ourselves to be part of that sweet spot. It's fascinating that you started right before 9-11, essentially. How did that impact things in the beginning? Well, this is another reason why it's important just to jump in and dive in off the deep end. If somebody had told me May, April, late April, that you're going to open a bank May 1st, but do you know 9-11 is going to happen six months later or less than six months later, interest rates are going to go from six and a quarter when we open to 1%, which is very important for us. And New York was actually going to get in, going, fall into its worst recession since the 60s, really the 50s, it was much worse than the 2008 recession, the early 2000s here in New York. If you just look at the job losses, for better or for worse, 2008 didn't have as anywhere near the impact that the recession did here in 2001, 2002, 2003. It was actually only post the financial crisis that New York made up those jobs. So if someone had told me that, I would have said, boy, maybe we better reconsider and save our money. But we had a thesis, and the truth of the matter is the financial crisis in a certain kind of way was a strangely a benefit in disguise because it allowed us to differentiate ourselves because here we were a conservative bank. We didn't make it. We didn't do any subprime lending. We didn't do any CDOs. We didn't do much in the way of construction lending. So when 2008 happened, we made more money than in 2007. And in 2009, we made more money in 2008. We had no down year during the financial crisis, which we are the only bank in the United States over $4 billion that can say that. So people started to tune in and say, whoa, what's going on here? And that, in a certain kind of way, helped us a lot. So you had this wonderful business career going, successful bank. You had parlayed that into, it sounds like, many different philanthropic endeavors. Why did you find it necessary or appealing to write your first book, Getting Our Groove Back, exploring the state of American Judaism, I guess in some ways an outgrowth of your own personal experience, but what did you find was important or necessary about that? So getting our groove back was, I thought, important to write for this reason. I've been very involved in a whole bunch of Jewish, as I said, I was an over-involved Jew. I was on all sorts of boards. I was chair of the Fund for Jewish Education. I was chair of the Commission on Jewish Identity Renewal. I was on the Birthright Israel Board. Birthright steering committee, should I say, not board, but, you know, the group with Israel, with the ministry, with Jewish agency. I was on the Jewish agency board. I'm involved in all these things, and everybody's coming up with all of these ideas for Jewish continuity. And 
they were all very nice ideas, but I always wanted data. And I said, you know, we have to go from being nice to effective. And so what the first book was saying, okay, let's not do everything that we as a Jewish community are doing. Let's pick what's important and, and swarm those and get obsessive about those. And so what I did is I took 10 important, what I thought were the most important things for the Jewish community to focus on and said, let's give everything else a bit of a rest for now. And that was in a way an eye opener for many people in the Jewish community. The, my first book actually became a bestseller, no exaggeration, within the Jewish community. Um, it sold over 17,000 books. 99.5% were bought by active Jewish communal activists or you know board members. And the other half a percent were friends of mine who weren't Jewish, but felt they had to buy the book because they, so the book had an impact, no question about it. Um, at the time, uh, I, I, I was actually extremely, that if you want to talk about a speaking career, that's, I was asked to be all over the place. Um, federations from Montreal to San Diego in the U.S. were inviting me to speak to their boards and were buying books and it became a big thing. Then something very interesting happened afterward. People in the business world would say to me, you know, I know you wrote this book and either they read it or they hadn't read it. They'd say, and these were all sorts of Jews and to some degree non-Jews who would say to me, you know, Scott, why do you really care about the future of the Jewish people so much? You know, it was important at the time, but now it's all about bagels, you know, our heritage bagels and having Chinese food on Christmas Eve. And, you know, we have a good feeling and I mean, a sense of humor and the Woody Allens of the world and, the, you know, all of them and the, the Jerry Seinfelds of the world. You know, it's about our humor. It's about our eating. It's about maybe, maybe some Israel, many not even. Uh, you know, give it a rest. There's no God. There's no, it's all Santa Claus and, and Tooth Fairy. This is all make-believe stuff. What do you care? What do you care if, you know, the next generation intermarries? And it got me to realizing how many people were just not convinced that there was any sort of point in, in there being a God, um, in believing in God. And I did a, um, so after I read my first book, I was able to spend a little more time doing Jewish communal affairs again. And I was chair of this Jewish community study of New York in 2001. It's the population study. And so I was really very deeply involved. And we did a number of things that totally changed the way that the Jewish population is kind of, including one, if people answered if they're Orthodox, we asked, are you, we had a follow-up question. Are you modern Orthodox, Yeshiva world, Hasidic? And then we asked if you were Hasidic. Never been done before. The Pew study saw it and, and followed up on that. Now everybody asks that question. But one thing that we asked in about two different ways is whether you believed in God. We didn't, I don't know if we probably, this was all published, but, you know, in the world as a whole, most people believe in God or think that maybe there's a God. 20% probably don't these days. Among Jews, it's really very much different. Maybe 30% of Jews are sure there's a God. And maybe another 30-ish percent think there's a God. But a lot of Jews don't believe that it's rational 
to believe in God or that there is a God. And then I, the more I talk to non, not my non-Jewish friends, my Christian and some Muslim friends, or at least whether they're, they're Christian, they're from Christian and Muslim heritage, let me put it that way. They also, you know, weren't sure it was rational to believe in God. So this motif came up more and more. And I thought, you know what? I believe it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science and the historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality. That it's important to make that case because the case isn't being made. You work on campuses, right? I mean, you know, a lot of college professors who I, some of them I've talked to say, you know, when they meet students who are believers, they say, you know what, it's okay. We understand that you're clinging to the superstitions of your parents. Don't worry. We're here to educate you. We're here to help. We're here to dispose of all of those crazy notions that you have that there's a God. Meanwhile, I think the whole, and you know, I think the whole idea of how we got to this progressive world that we live in is because of God, because of the impulse of the Bible. So then I started, it's a long answer, but then I started reading Dawkins and Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris. And I looked for a response. I looked for a Jewish response. I looked for a non-Jewish response. And frankly, I didn't find, I found responses that sort of, you had to believe that you were a little bit before you could have that response. In the Christian world, for sure, there's some Jewish books, permission to, permission to believe. That's Lawrence Kellerman. And then you have Jonathan Sachs in some ways. Jonathan Sachs in some ways. Um, Jonathan Sachs, I consider a mentor and inspiration. He actually guided me. He actually gave me the, the idea for the title of the book. But I, I still felt like there was a need for a book that would reach Jew, non-Jew, and that would come at a point of saying to educated folks, I get what you're, you're hearing. Now, let me break it down. Let me go through the arguments of the, of the atheists, of the, you know, of the uh, horsemen of the, uh, you know, of the apocalypse, as they like to be called, or until Christopher Hitchin passed away, um, yep, yep. and do it in a serious way. And what I concluded is a certain kind of way that, and, he, and what I want to leave readers with is that it is entirely rational to not believe in God. I get it. There's no proof of God. At the same time, it's entirely rational to believe in God, and you're, there is no proof that there is not a God. So let's have a conversation, uh, and let's do it around things like the golden rule, Hillel's formulation, don't do unto others what's hateful unto you. Let's do it around understanding what the dangers of non-belief in God are, which is that we fall into idolatry and i explain how the bible really came to overturn idolatry and how when you don't believe in god there's a huge tendency to deify other things and ideologies or self-deify and i go through some stories on wall street about folks who self-deified and that's really dangerous when we start deifying ideologies in life because that's when the real wars happen it's essentially we turn ideologies into idolatries. And I explain, you know, I, what I talk about is we thought we licked, a lot of people think, oh, we licked the God King Pharaoh 3,800 years ago. Well, the whole 
African 20th century was a litany of God King pharaohs, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, Hitler, the Assad family, the Kim family, and I could go on and on, who used the same tropes of pageantry and poem and temples to themselves, of course, always all backed up by a powerful army and informers who would enforce an ideology and who had this sense of super authority, if not superpower. I mean, how did Mao cause 30 million, 40 million people to perish during the Great Leap Forward? How did Stalin kill all the gulags, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, and send tens of millions to the gulag? Because, and nobody said no to any of those people because they had super authority. That's how Hitler did it. I mean, that's how Assad does it. What's Assad's authority? He's a god king in his own mind, and sadly, in the mind of his followers. I'm curious because it sounds like the premise of the book really is more anti-atheist than it is pro-theist. You stated that it was kind of equally rational to believe or to not believe, and absent any really compelling, attracting proof or evidence why would a person choose that approach when living a God-centered life invariably involves some level of restriction, of constraint? So I guess my question is, where do you see being the positive arguments as opposed to the defense against? So here's the thing. First of all, where I tried it's weird, what I said is I try to engage in talking to the atheist community by the golden rule. Because here's the problem with atheists. There are two kinds of atheists. There's the golden rule atheists who have this idea that I think emanates a little bit, that emanates a lot of it from the Bible, which is that we're all brothers and sisters because we're all descendants of the proverbial first human beings. And therefore we have a responsibility. We're all have a frat. We have some small fraction of divine spark and everybody else does. I do, you do, the person out there does, the person that way does, and therefore I owe a responsibility to them. And the golden rule is, is encaptured in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's a great thing. But then you get a lot of atheists who, and Peter Singer has explicated a theology of this, if you will, a a philosophy of this where, you know what? We need to either do what's best for the most people or we need to do what's best for the people who are the elite or the smartest because there really is no reason why I should treat the next person. He just is a, happen to evolve like I evolved. And if I can destroy him and take whatever he's got of, that's of value to me, why not? What's the reason? There's no God. There's no justice. If I can have more things, more power, more money, more whatever, that's great. I call those folks Machiavellian atheists. That's really dangerous. Now, by the way, and I have to, before I get to the main point to, the, to, the, to, to bringing this together, I have to say there are also idolaters and monotheists guard. There are people who abuse religion by declaring themselves as the sole spokesperson for God, or their group is the sole spokesperson for God. And that, to me, is a certain kind of idolatry as well. The way we counted the third commandment 
is about not taking God's name Bashab in vain. What does that mean? I don't think it's that we have to write G-D all the time. It's fine if you do. I'm not against it. But I think saying, I know what God wants. You don't have to listen to anybody else. That's taking God's name in vain to me. And that's why it's in that first three commandments, which are about idolatry. Isn't that what every religion does, though? So Judaism, and one of the things that I love about Judaism is we have this, this Noahide tradition, which is that anyone righteous can be, has a share in Olam Abba, has a share in the world to come, and is a righteous person that I should deal with as another Tzelem Elohim, as another person in God's image. And that's something that's beautiful to me. I mean, we have in the Bible again, in the Chumash, you know, we start out with Malchit Tzedek. We have Yitro. We have, a, we have a whole bunch of people who are righteous. They happen to not be Jewish, but that's okay. Because in a certain kind of way, they both declare a certain monotheism. And so, you know, but I get concerned when religions do say that other ways of approaching and worshiping one God are invalid. I think that's a problem. And, you know, I, I talk about that a little bit in the book. I am worried about exclusions because I do think that's when horrors can happen. So I think horrors can happen when religions become idolatrous to themselves and also when secularism becomes idolatrous to them to itself because let's not forget communism was a secular idolatrous religion and it became you know it had its it was it declared itself as the sole way of progressing humanity and you know what it doesn't matter if you murder tens of millions of people paul pot murdered 25 percent of his own population his own brothers and sisters and it didn't bother him because that's what was okay. That's what was required. And so, but you couldn't do that if you were a believer in the golden rule. So I try to engage atheists with respect to that golden rule. I find, frankly, it's very effective. It's, it's a very effective common language that we can bring because it all emanates, again, from our being brothers and sisters, which is a very biblical idea. That being said, if somebody came to you, a Jewish person, let's say, and said, why should I practice Judaism per se, as opposed to just status quo, so to speak, agnosticism, what would you respond? Right. So here's what I would say. In my view, and I think if you read my book, the evidence for God is greater than the evidence for no God. So I think the evidence is good, but if you don't believe in God or you're not willing to accept God and you want to remain agnostic, okay, but, but make sure that your morality is guided by the golden rule and be open to folks who do believe in God and being able to engage with them. Don't be dismissive of them. But I don't think asking people to believe, and particularly when they, you know, engaging in in Jewish belief or other beliefs where the stakes are so high that saying to someone, believe or don't believe is a useful way of progressing. Uh, you know, and again, you're more of an expert in this field, but 
the stakes are pretty high for many people to say they for an for for an atheist to say, okay, I'm a believer. That's pretty high. Um, you know, there's the old joke. It's not a joke. There's the old story about the professor from a well-known university, like Mayor specializes in, who has written atheist books. And he goes to an atheist convention in Jackson Hall, you know, at Yellowstone Park. And he goes and walks before the sessions are going to do because he wants to commune with the wholeness and wonderfulness of this randomness of nature. And then all of a sudden he turns around and there's a bear coming after him. And he runs and the bear chases him. And then he trips and the bear starts to pounce on him. And the atheist cries out, Oh Lord, save me. And then a bolt of lightning, a bolt of thunder comes and the bear is in mid pounce over the professor. And the Lord says to him, Professor, you have not walked in my ways. You have not done what I've wanted you to do. But now if you declare, you go back and you declare your faith in me to the convention, I will save you from despair. So by this time, the professor is already recognizing the stakes are high. He says, oh God, I, I can't really do that because to declare myself a God-fearing person would really be embarrassing. I couldn't walk into the faculty club anymore at my university. I have a better idea. Why don't you make this bear a God-fearing bear? Another clap of thunder and the bear drops to his knees. And all of a sudden the professor feels everything is going to be okay. And then the bear says, oh Lord, thank you for this meal of which I'm about to partake. <laughs> the stakes are high and you know people just can't accept god so easily and you know there's a story the professor goes i'm sorry if that was too long of a story but no that's a great story that's funny um i want to ask what do you think given that you do believe that the scale tilts in favor of theism what do you think is the most compelling line of reasoning, line of argumentation in that direction? And conversely, what do you see as the most challenging argument from atheists to theism? Well, I can tell you this now from experience, having done some talking and talked to a lot of people, what they think. And look, I think if you're dealing with someone scientifically, the most compelling thing about, and I raise, I discussed this in my book, is there are six constants of the universe and if they were off by very small amounts there would be nothing we wouldn't be having this conversation this universe seems to be uniquely created to allow life uh, in a most unlikely way and it's not like we just won one lottery we won six successive lotteries and had we not won each lottery in the right progression, in precisely the right amount, there would be nothing. Now, that leads you only to, okay, there's some deistic God, but the answers of the atheists that we're part of the multiverse, and there's an infinite number of universes, frankly, is totally belief-based as well. Right. And I go to something even more fundamental, which is 
people claim that these theories of multiverse and of, of M theory and of superstring theory are all great. They're all math. But why should math even work? You know, if you believe in randomness, the reason we understand math is because when we were evolving, we needed to know, okay, there were five bears that ran in that direction, four bears ran back. We still better not run in that direction because there's one more bear. And people who understood math self-selected under natural selection, and they lived because they could do a little bit of math. But why should that have any connection to the structure of the universe? Our ability to do arithmetic and math. There's no reason it should have any structure to the universe. So you, I actually think math and, and arithmetic are God-given. So I, I very hard pre I, I find that people have a very hard time of you know refuting that in any way because if you believe in randomness, then you shouldn't believe our math. You shouldn't believe our science. Look, I think in section two of my book is what ends up. Section two and section three, I'd say, are close competitors. When I do speaking appearances and people ask questions, it's almost invariably somebody who asks me one thing about the Bible, the Torah, that is so unethical that they can't deal with it. And it could be sacrifices of animals. It could be the, uh, the, the commandment to, 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 to stone the rebellious son. It could be... Uh, you know, slavery. It could be a whole bunch of things. I, I never know what it's going to be, but it's always one. And then the second thing people ask that I think bothers them, and for some people, this is insurmountable, which is how could an all good God allow things like the Holocaust? And I, I talk a lot about my, when, when people talk about that, I do talk about my father's experience. And his enduring belief. Well, his enduring certainty that there was a God and his enduring anger at God for letting what happened happen. And you know what? I think, I think yeah. God understood that anger quite well. And I think there was no uncertainty on the relationship of either side. And I suspect, and this is my belief, certainly, is God got it. You know, my father had a right to be angry. Perfect right. And that really is an answer that I've, there is no answer. Let me just say that. But, you know, I'll talk about how survivors endured with either belief, uncertainty, or in some cases they did walk away. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say there was uniformity. Some of my father's friends said, I can't believe in this God. If this God exists, gegezunterheim. How did your father deal with it? Well, my father, and I talk about this a little in the book, my father, again, had knew that the Jewish people was important. He knew his heritage was important. He and many of his friends went to Shul. We belonged to Congregation Beth Shalom in, in East Rogers Park. But he would be, and his friends would talk during services. They'd doze off during the rabbi's sermon. They'd make sure that they're Sons and daughters were bar bat mitzvah. They donate to you know the synagogue. They would be respectful to the rabbi, but they didn't do a lot of praying because they were sort of giving God the silent treatment. But why did he believe? 
He believed because he knew from so many unlikely events that if they had happened just a little differently, my father never would have made it from Spectrum of Duane to a life in Chicago. If my father had been found days later, he would have been dead. Days later, he was 60 pounds when he left. He was lucky enough to be found by an American battalion or liberated by an American battalion who sent him to a hospital for an army hospital for a year. Had he just been given food, he would have been dead. And, and the story, and I tell this a little bit in the book, is the way he was deported had one minor thing happened. Any other path, my father would have been dead. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. The, the, the quantum path to him making it to Chicago and have, getting married and having a child was so narrow and so unlikely that he knew he had been given a helping hand along the way. And he, he accepted that. He knew that there was a God who had helped him get there and that he had a purpose in life. But that didn't stop him from being angry at having his, his father murdered. His mother had died previously in childbirth of his brother, one of his brothers, having his brothers murdered, having his uncles murdered. I mean, that's a big thing. And it's not easy to forgive God for that for my father. And I, I got it. And I, as I said, I think God got it too. Well, this is such a fascinating topic, probably the most important topic we could discuss. And of course, there's so much more to delve into. Even once you believe in a God and an all-powerful being, there's still the need to arrive at the personal God, the God of the Bible, the Jewish God, all of the systems of Judaism, of course, for those who are Jewish. And we could go on for hours and hours, if not weeks and, and months and years. And so I certainly encourage people to read the book and to follow up in depth. Scott, where could people go to find the book and also learn more about it and just about your work in general? So they can go to, they want to learn about the book and, and more work in general. And if they want discussion guides, we've actually had such demand for discussion guides that I have a, put together. Uh, six discussion guides for each section. I was going to ask if you had a curriculum about it. So perfect. Yeah. And it's around, it's, it's not quite a curriculum, but it, it helps people and people. There've been some, some uh, book groups that have not some, there've been more than several book groups that have used it so far. You can go to scottshay.com or ingoodfaith.com. And actually I can be contacted there. There is a contact form as well. Uh, and I'm hoping I look, I spent five years of all my time doing this. I want people to read the book. I want people to talk about the book. I think these are the central questions that we're facing. And I think these are urgent questions. Urgent indeed. And we are greatly indebted for the service of the five years of your life that you've dedicated almost entirely to creating and developing this book. I've been enjoying it immensely. I hope and really know that many others will as well. So Scott Shea, thank you for what you have done and continue to do for this cause. And thank you, Ari, for all you do on behalf of the Jewish people. You have a thankless job, so I'm saying thank you. <laughs> on that point, you are certainly correct. There could be no non-believer when it comes to that statement. Thank you again. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. 
please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know